this is Tiffany Bobo. Welcome to the What's Next podcast, where I have the pleasure of welcoming Dr. Tony Byers to the show today. He is best known for leading global diversity and inclusion at Starbucks Coffee Company, where he was responsible for developing and leading the strategic direction for global diversity and inclusion to drive engagement, innovation, and business growth. He's an accomplished inclusion and change management specialist with 20 years of demonstrated experience leading change in large matrix multinational organizations. During his professional career, he's held various leadership roles, including diversity and inclusion, talent acquisition, and organizational change. And he has a book coming out uh, about the multiplier effects of diversity and inclusion. So welcome, Tony, to the podcast. Thank you, Tiffany. I appreciate the opportunity to be here with you. Absolutely. Well, I like to start out my my podcast with something I call bullish and bearish. Nothing too painful, I hope, uh, but the listeners seem to really enjoy it and, and actually tweet out a lot about uh, why my guests say bullish or bearish on certain things. So just, you know, keep keep in mind that someone might come and, and double click on the question for you, but I, I try to make it not too painful. So okay. uh, bullish if you're really for something and bearish if you're not. Let me know. Are you ready? All right. I am ready. All righty. The first one, virtual reality immersion training to curb unconscious bias. Bullish or bearish on it? Hmm. I'm actually going to go with bullish on this one. I thought I would have said bear, uh, but, you know, there might be something to the, the virtual reality aspect of it that, that could be really appealing to a, a lot of individuals who are trying to get an understanding of training. Unconscious bias training is hard to do just online, but maybe adding a virtual component to it may give the user some experiences or touch some part of their biases that could be revealing for that person. So I'm actually going to say bullish on that one. Great. And we'll dig into that because I actually have an example for you. Uh, Mm -hmm. The second one is diversity and inclusion will soon need to include artificial intelligence. Wow, that one I'm going to come down and on the middle on, but it, that is a fascinating question. But you know what? I'm, I'm actually going to take a stance. I am going to say bear. All right, fair oh, enough. Yeah, I'll, I'll, fair t- enough. I'll take bearish. We'll have to go. Yeah, we'll have to. We'll have to talk about that further. But that is a fascinating question. Good. All right, and the third one. This is a little more fun. Uh, the barista of the future might be a robot. <laughs> <laughs> bearish. I just can't stand that word. Bearish. Bearish. All yes, right. Right. All right. I'll, I'll, I'll give you that one. I think, you know, I think the people side of that might be a little disturbed, but, uh, you know, I thought right. I'd try to, to keep it a little fun, if you will. Indeed. That well, was so great. Fun. Well, yeah. Well, let me let me dig into that. Uh, the virtual reality. Um, you know, I was I was participating in an event a, a couple of years back, uh, and a company called Stanford VR uh, had a literally had a, a bias training via virtual reality. And so, you know, it was whether it was a man virtual reality feeling what it's like to walk into a room as a woman being the only woman in a room or Mm -hmm. African-American or an Asian or disabled or whatever it was that you could walk in the shoes of someone who was not you, you know, didn't look like you in any way um, and have them experience, you know, walking across the street and having people walk towards you and cross the street because you were walking Mm -hmm. towards them or in a meeting in a professional environment. 
and all sort of planting these seeds around this bias and and then what it changed in the behavior going forward it was super fascinating mm. and so uh you know as you were saying it might be better than the 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 learning online or sitting in a class what what do you think yeah so um that's exactly the point for me i there is this experience about bias where a person has to understand social exclusion and when you look at the research that talks about exclusion activating areas in the brain as the same place as pain. And so if a person is taking a training online, trying to understand social exclusion, it, it becomes one way learning and their brain or their feeling or the emotion may not activate or trigger for them the experience of what it feels like to be biased against or to have some type of exclusion where virtual reality could help is that if a person is is immersed in an experience that has them going or feeling some of the effects of exclusion, then their brain might trigger that, that emotional pain for them. I'm using air quotes when I say emotional pain, but that social exclusion might register in their brain. They may remember it more. They may empathize with it more because they know what it feels like because it becomes real for that individual learner. And that's where we can now begin to make some changes or have that person empathize and begin to change their behavior as to not create environments like that for their team members and or employees. So I think that virtual reality can help a lot in really just getting people in touch with that experience. And I think that begs the question then, uh, because of how you just framed that out, how would you define DNI or diversity and inclusion? Because it gets tossed around a lot. It's sort of like innovation and transformation. It's kind of, now it's one of those terms that may have a lot of meanings. And that social exclusion was a great way to frame mm. that up. And so, you know, how would you define diversity uh, and inclusion uh, based on the work you've been doing? Certainly. And I actually make a distinction between both words and some people use them to be one and the same. Uh, and I like to make it simple. So for me, diversity is simply who we are. It's the, the individual, uh, you know, what they look like, what their background, who you are as an individual. Um, inclusion is actually it's a behavior. Some people call it a feeling, but it is a behavior that drives a feeling that allows people to be involved, respected, valued and connected. And then they can bring their diversity, who they are to problems or situations and allow that to help create new solutions, which drives towards innovation. So one is a noun that describes who you are. The other is a verb. It's about an action. It talks about what we do to create environment, to leverage the difference or the diversity that a person has. So that's how I like to describe diversity and inclusion and try to make it simple. One's a noun, the other is a verb. Well, and I've had a number of guests on the podcast thus far, whether it's Franz Johansson or Lisa Budell, Mark Bonchek, and, and we've dug into the the sides of diversity and inclusion that are not just the physical, right? So not just gender or race or origin, et cetera, but also mm -hmm. on things like thinking styles, right? You have introverts and extroverts. I'm just going to stop there because I think that gives a good example, right? Someone who's willing to talk in a meeting mm -hmm. or someone who's not willing to talk. And so do you also look that aspect? I do live that aspect, but 
I think the approach that I've been trying to take is to help un- people understand that there, there are even different levels of diversity. If you look at how the Center of Talent Innovation describes diversity, they call one D1 uh, type of diversity. And that diversity is based on some uh, intrinsic, intrinsically or some things that just you're born right. with, who you are. And then there are those things that they call D2 type diversity. And those are the type of diversity or diverse experience that you acquire just from living and acting and acting in the world. So the learning styles, your experiences, your, you know, if you've traveled the world, you kind of have a global mindset. Those things are D2, your gender or your race or your abilities. Some of the things that you're kind of born with, those things are D1. I like to make a distinction between the two, but what I think is Equally important is when you talk with organization and organizational leaders is that if you veer towards D2 over D1 or D1 over D2, you're not going to get the value of having a diverse and inclusive organization that you're looking for. Some leaders think because I have people who think differently, my team is totally diverse and therefore I don't have to be concerned with ethnic diversity or gender diversity, because I have a team of all all males and one's from from Canada and the other is from Texas. So we're diverse, Tony, so I don't have to worry about diversity anymore. And although our research instructs us that having diverse terms of D1 type of, of, of diversity on your team doesn't guarantee that you're going to get Uh, the innovation you want. We do know that you can't get the innovation you want without it. So there's a strong correlation between D1 diversity and D2 type behaviors thinking that needs to be included in the equation when we talk about building teams or organizations that are diverse. Well, so I've heard sort of big D, little D. So I'm guessing that's the sort of one group Mm. D1 and D2. Um, but, yes. but I think that's a great distinction and, and, and I'm going to absolutely start to adopt that because I think people get very wrapped around the, uh, big D, D1. Uh, mm-hmm. and so they mm-hmm. think that that solves for, uh, the other side of it as well. Uh, but, you know, at the bottom of this conversation and, and a lot of work you've been doing has been around using, DI for growth for businesses. So many people say, oh, why should I pay attention to this outside of, you know, uh, it's the right thing to do, mm-hmm. <laughs> but mm-hmm. you know, right in air quotes, it is not yes. going to necessarily hit the bottom line or the shareholders or, you know, the investors. And so everybody sort of says, well, is that, are those the kinds of things you want to do spending money on that? What's your sort of initial reaction when people say, I don't think D&I can uh, actually impact growth? Yeah, I shudder at the thought because <laughs> it, you know, <laughs> there is this thing called the, the the innovation window that talks about or looks at how organizations utilize growth. So if you have an S-curve to growth for your business, you introduce a new product, product does quite well. It gets to the point where that product starts to taper off or even decline because it's either been on the market long, saturated, whatever those reasons are. This is the point where there's a thing called an innovation window, where when you infuse diversity and inclusion, right when the product is at the top of its S curve or growth curve, then what you're able to do is to create another growth curve that allows that product to be more sustainable or evolve or become innovative and grow into the future. So if you have this opportunity to infuse this at the right point in time, you actually do 
change the business bottom line or change the, the growth proposition for a business. There are many companies who have done this. I mean, we can we can look at and think about or talk about where organizations have learned to tap diverse perspectives and allow that to influence their product line, which it had resulted in an increase in market success. I, I'm going to point to the snack industry. We talk about uh, Cheetos brand snacks or Frito-Lay as a business. Because of a diverse perspective, one person who happened to be a janitor of the company was adding cayenne pepper to his Cheetos and shaking it up in the bag. And when his friends found out and asked him what he was doing, he thought it tastes better that way. And the end result is we created a $1 billion category in flavored snack chips that has hot sauce on it. Or these things are because of people bringing their identity and perspectives of different ways of doing things to a business model. So yeah, you got to have it if you really want to see your business grow or if you really want to influence the innovation window in order to drive new growth. Well, then there's the flip side of the coin, right? So you've got product development, which I think that was a great example, right? At the top of that funnel, at the top of the S-curve, designing for the customer. Um, you know, and there's a lot we could say there. But let's say that, the, you know, when identifying a viable market to go after, I mean, one of the biggest reasons startups fail is because they develop a product nobody actually wants. <laughs> So that's right. So that's sort of problem one. But if you if you get past that, you know, one of the things I find fascinating, it, I'm being very very basic here in a, in a, in big broad category. But uh, you know, men versus women as a target customer base, those are very different personalities, wants, needs, use styles, etc. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's a lot of growth on the other side when you start to use DNI as a who is our customer. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Right? And when you look at the research on that, what you discover is that those companies that have that diversity uh, and, and practice inclusion inside of their organization well, understand that they're 45% more likely to grow their current market and 70% more likely to capture new market growth just by engaging in that process. And I, and I got to say, there's a distinction. It's not by having diversity. It is actually by leveraging the diversity through inclusion is what drives those outcomes. And, and so if once organizations get good at the behavioral part, uh, first, you got, I guess you do have to get good at having diversity in your organization, but you must become effective at leveraging that in order to have the impact on your bottom line. Yeah. So maybe give an example, right? So you could say going after the Hispanic community, I'm going to go in sort of race, right? Or the African-American or, um, <clears throat> you know, the Asian community, right? Actually getting into the demographic of the subtle differences between, you know, how a product is even positioned mm -hmm. or messaged, right, from a marketing perspective. And do you think CMOs uh, or marketers understand the subtle persona differentiation at this point? Um, in some cases, yes. In some cases, no. I think the things that CMOs do is they try to buy market intelligence. And, you know, they work with organizations who sell a package and say, oh, if you're going to talk to this group, you must use language like this, or you must appeal to them this way. And sometimes that can be effective. But in other cases, there's a disconnect because the consumer is not intimately involved with the product. They're not really engaged or connected with the product. So here's an example. I worked with um, a condiment company, uh, and this, this particular company sold ketchup. We, we worked with the sales team and the sales leader who happened to be a gentleman of uh, Mexican heritage. 
they were looking at what they could do to increase sales in the southwest portion of the United States with the product line. When we bought market intelligence and interacted with uh, our, our branding team and marketing team, everyone thought, well, all we had to do is change the language on the package so that people could read it. You know, if you made it in, uh, in uh, Spanish, then maybe they would buy the product. So you make those changes. You don't see the type of sales that you want to see. What we did is we went on a cultural immersion. We took the sales teams to some of the small Mercados and the markets. We sat with families and we talked about how they actually utilize our product versus how we have been marketing it to them. And what we discovered is that this community was not utilizing our product as a condiment, as something that you place on top of some type of food item. They were using it as a base ingredient that you use it and you blend with other spices, mixes, whatever, in order to create something else. And so we were marketed to marketing it to them as if it was a condiment. They wanted to use it as a base ingredient. And once we started to change and interact right. differently, we saw an increase in sales because now we can market to them in a way where it made sense to them. And that came from just being culturally intelligent or being curious about the group that we're interacting with. Yeah, and I think that that's that small data uh, I had Martin Lindstrom on, and I don't know if you know who he is, but you know he he's all about that, especially in the consumer mm -hmm. packaged good market. I mean, he traveled around the world and went to people's homes and watched how they used it for P and G and Johnson right. and Johnson, everybody, right? And uh, it was all in that small data that he would have noticed that they used it as a base versus a condiment, right? And then how do you take that? Um, and so I think the lesson here is that many companies still look at big swaths. Men, yeah. women, you know, uh, North right. America, Europe, uh, and then and even North America as being the United States and not being the West Coast, East Coast, the Midwest, right. Central, That's you know, right. it's very different um, in, in what they eat. Uh, I was born and raised in Hawaii, and, and we're the largest consumers <laughs> of spam in the world. <laughs> so, you know. That's, I think that's where spam still has, you know, keeps its doors open is from everything that happens yeah. in Hawaii. Um, but very different the way we culturally eat versus way the way that you would culturally eat uh, anywhere else really in the U.S., right. but maybe some pockets uh, of uh, with large um, Pacific Rim sort of uh, demographic. And so how, how would you recommend companies go and learn that information? Uh, so, you know, I want to say right now I'm a marketer and we're looking at it maybe just between male and female or, you know, region. And they can't maybe get all the way down to the individual user level. But what are the ways, what are some pieces of advice um, that they can, steps they can take in order to be better around that cultural mm -hmm. side of inclusion when it comes to marketing and product development? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, let me just say real quickly. So I was born and raised in, in Minnesota, which is where spam started. So I'm quite familiar with spam. <laughs> just, we have a connection. There it is. <laughs> so um, one of the ways in which many organizations start is that they look at their own internal workforce. And so you look back at your workforce and you ask yourself, do I have cultural diversity or ethnic diversity inside of my organization that I can leverage through something like an employee resource group to have them try a product, test the product, give us feedback on what their cultural group experiences, uh, what those cultural groups experiences are, which we can learn from and then make tweaks to our marketing or our packaging. I've seen a lot of companies do this where they've been able just to go back and tap that group. Actually, um, uh, 
Charcoal from Kingsford, which is a Clorox, Clorox brand company, they have a story that kind of relates to that. They talked about the sales of uh, charcoal briquettes was on a decline at one point in time because of the popularity of gas grills. One of the things that they were able to do is tap into their own internal employee resource group. In this case, it happened to be Hispanic Latin, Latino market and just ask them, you know, what are, what are some of the things we can do to reach out to different communities, perhaps your community? Then they were able to come up with new marketing plans, new ideas that appealed to this group. And, and as a result, they were able to increase sales in that product line. So going back to your own group and saying, hey, tell us some things we don't know. When I was at Starbucks, we used to we worked with one of our internal groups to test new products. We were coming out with something called a, a latte that was based on flan. Uh, and, and we were gun ho to release that to the market. And we, we had an opportunity to talk to a number of different Latino Hispanic um, um, partners, employees in this case, were all called partners at Starbucks, and have them taste the product before we actually went to market with it for feedback and ways in which we can tweak it. So that's one good way of doing that is touch your own team. And it's surprising to me how many people don't do that. I am totally amazed by that. And it, and that goes back to what I was saying, how many, yeah. yeah, it's shocking that when people say, well, what do you think we should be doing next? My, you know, and sort of through my career, and especially in the last 10 or 12 years, my first question back is, mm-hmm. what do your customers think? Uh, you know, and, and, and customers could be internal employees, right? This just the full range of the ecosystem of the shareholder. Uh, but you guys did something at Starbucks, you know, powered on our technology on, on Salesforce around that sort of whole idea, right, of capturing ideas um, from various communities, which I think serves well in that, right. what are they saying? Uh, you know, what are your, what is your customer saying? But how do you scale that? Because it's hard, right? So those kind of idea capturing platforms and, and technology has really enabled brands to have almost no excuse for not knowing mm-hmm. what their customers want. Because it used to be, well, let me human ask them or let me go do some primary research. It was very expensive and it took time. And by the time you got the results from the study, it's been 12 months and the, and the right. tastes have already moved on. And so that real-time uh, feedback, I think, is critical. Yes. And, and, and there's even one click down on top of that, Tiffany, because there's there's the real time feedback. So we had an understanding that customers wanted different beverages based on the market in which they lived in. So in Florida, in the southeast portion of the U.S., we understood that flan was going to be a popular product, a flan flavored latte. But we had to even click down one more to say, OK, we know what they want. We can go and create it. But have we allowed that group to taste it to make sure that it aligns with what their expectations are. So one was about intelligence, just discovering what they wanted. The other was about ensuring that the product would meet the, the, the as I always say, the palate of the community that you're trying to serve. So there, there was even another level for us. And so what, what changed? Was there one or two or three things that, so like, let's say you said, you know, okay, we're, we're going to test with that particular community, mm-hmm. a product that, you know, on a scale of one to 10, we think is a 10, right, let's just right. say, Right. They they tasted it, uh, whatever it is, right? They tasted it, tried it, used it, and came back and said, mm, it's actually like a six. Were you way off? Did you have to make many adjustments? Yeah, we were off. We I don't want to use the, I don't want to use the word yeah. way, but it would be appropriate. We were definitely off. I think the group said the group said it doesn't taste like flan at all. And so that was a whole experience. It's like, whoa, we were ready to go to the market tomorrow. <laughs> and they're saying, hey, this really doesn't taste like flan at all. So there was there was some tweaking that had to be done. But that's okay, right? I mean, I think that 
Um, and then, and then I, I think more than anything, when you talk about innovation and using diversity and inclusion for an innovation, that's a great example of trying, failing, iterating, trying, yes. failing, iterating. And part of that cycle has to be this inclusion of various customers, um, inclusion of various types of people and regions and race and gender, et cetera. Right. I mean, unless even, even something like insurance, mm -hmm. you know, so like buying insurance tends to be, uh, statistically anyway, very male dominated, mm -hmm. you know, so car and home insurance right. kind of a thing and never, it, and rarely have the brands been able to crack into, uh, women buying it, uh, especially in a in a household with a right, with right. a man and a woman, um, and uh, so you know you have a husband and a wife. The husband usually takes care of it, that kind of thing. And, and I'm over generalizing. I'm just saying what the research says. By no means do I do I agree with this uh -huh. statement. But um, uh, a, a company called Lemonade Insurance actually said, "Well, we're and it wasn't their overall goal, but the result of what they did." from a customer experience standpoint, actually attracted significantly more, mm. like 10X, the percentage of women that the other much larger established 100-year-old insurance companies were attracting. And it had everything to do with developing a product, right, that met this uh, better experience, which then attracted first-time insurance buyers, i.e. millennials, and uh, uh, people who ha already have insurance, more women in that category. Mm. And it was a total accident, mm. not expected at all. Uh, so it wasn't planned. Uh, it was just the result of, of what they did. Well, that, you know, fascinating because they, it was, there was research at one point in time that described that women make 80% of every major purchase decision that happens globally. Uh, from cars to, and I imagine even insurance. Although men, we think we make those decisions, even when we're in dual, dual households where there happens to be a male-female type relationship. We believe we make those decisions, but we take cues from someone else. So when the major decisions are needed to happen, the, the, we say that women influence at least 80% of all major purchases that happen inside of households. So you think, you think we pay more attention yeah, so I wonder in that example of insurance if it's women make may make the may make the decision, but the men have there to call is. and, and do is. the work. <laughs> At least that's how it happens in my in my house. I say, is. hey, yeah, I, I was going to say we've totally, that's a, we've totally I'm thinking about it. this. What do you what do you think? Totally no, it. yes, okay, go for it, fine, and I'll go back and take care of the details. So that's that's how it happens. All right. There you go. There you go. Well, so you know the the other thing behind this is having companies actually pivot towards what you'd call mm -hmm. a growth mindset. And, and, and I would guess that diversity inclusion has to be a new part of this mindset, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. I, Especially yes. around growth. Around specifically. growth. Absolutely. And I think actually more the inclusion part um, in terms of what inclusion means the behaviors of it than the diversity part, because again, organizations have arrived at this point, like, okay, we better go out and get some people who are different uh, or get some people who are diverse, because as you said before, we're using air quotes, that's the right thing to do. But the growth mindset piece is really how do we get active and how do we start practicing the behaviors of inclusion? And that means that you have to be curious and change yourself and have the courage to, to understand that bringing in these different voices and ideas, those that, that is the behavior that that is going to make us successful, not just having them. Um, and so the growth mindset is I can't be fixed on these are the way things have to be in order for us to be successful here. 
Here's an example. We Many organizations or in the past or currently will say, we're going to go out and we're going to hire someone who looks like us, acts like us, talks like us, went to the same school that we went to or one similar to the one that we went to. And then we bring them on our job role and then we say, give us a creative and innovative idea we've never thought of before. And this is what organizations have been doing when they have that expectation that everyone must be the same um, and or we must all practice things the same way. And growth mindset allows you to move away from that and think about different ways of doing it. Well, so yeah, this has been really fantastic. I wish I wish we had more time, but I'm gonna, I'm going to ask with sort of two final questions. One is, what does it mean to do it well? What does it mean to do DNI well? Mm-hmm. Um, the answer to that is to um, understand that diversity is necessary and become effective at practicing the behaviors of inclusion. Quick and succinct. I I totally agree. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because I I think lots of companies get hung up. I said this at the beginning of of our of our talk here today is that they get caught up in the how will it actually impact my bottom line? I'm going to spend and do these things. I'm going to retrain with VR or whatever it might be. You know, I'm going to mm-hmm. start hiring these kinds of people. I want to have um, more, uh, be more inclusive at the board level and at the leadership level. Like doing all these things, and they go, okay, we're investing millions of dollars in 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 these efforts. What is it giving me on the bottom line? I think they get very hung yeah. up on the ROI of it. Uh, which is hard to tie one-to-one. Would you agree? It is. Um, However, we do see through some some of the latest research that those companies that are effective, um, they get a great return on equity and a return on investment um, and anywhere between 19 to 30% between their gender and ethnic diversity that they have on uh, within their organization or within the leadership. But there's no expectation of behavioral change. It's just let's just bring some in. And that's the reason why we're not getting the results that we desire, because we haven't gotten them to the point of what are the behaviors we need to practice in order for this to be effective. And that's what I try to highlight, uh, at least in my book, in the multiplier effect of inclusion is how do you do that? What are those behaviors? And give me examples of how those show up. Fantastic. So last question is, what's next for you, Tony? What's next? I know the, I know the book. Um, so maybe you can give an update on that and then, uh, what else is, is next for you? Well, you know, the book is, is due out this summer. And so I was actually talking with a group earlier about the way it's going to kind of pan out. So we should see that here in about next month or two. And what's next for me, after you write one book, you say, man, I don't think I'm ever going to do that again. And I've started writing another <laughs> book. Amen, so, brother. <laughs> that's right. So uh, it sounds like I'm going to, or at least feels like I'm going to try to do another one. And I'm starting to look at what does it take to make habits, building the habits of inclusion. So perhaps we can talk about that someday. Oh, that would be fantastic. Well, Tony, it's been a pleasure interviewing you today on the What's Next podcast. I hope you had as great of a time um, as I did. And I'm, I'm really excited to hear uh, what you may dig into and uncover around the, the VR side of training on DNI. I think there's a lot of opportunity there. Absolutely. You know, I'm, I'm very thankful for this opportunity. I really enjoy talking with you today. Wow, I thought that was fantastic. I could have gone on for another half hour. I hope you felt the same way I did uh, with that conversation I just had with Tony Byers. Fantastic, super fascinating. I loved what he said about D1 and D2 and this distinction between uh, the big D and little D of 
diversity and the things that we can con control in our thinking styles, uh, the way we behave and the things we obviously we can't control like gender and race and where we were born, et cetera. And so I think it's wonderful for us to make sure that we continue to think about diversity and inclusion as an all encompassing term, right? People who not are just like us uh, physically, but also in the way that they think and using diversity and inclusion for growth around the innovation window of product development at the top of the funnel when you're just entering that S curve and then to tap into DNI as for marketers and sellers as you look to who are the people and the customers you're selling to. But the biggest one for me is I loved when he picked up on the fact that making sure you know who your customers are and what they want is critical to success in business. You do two things, you make stuff, you sell stuff. And if you don't know what to make or who to sell to, you've got a problem. But hopefully this was uh, really great for you as much as it was for me. I appreciate you listening to the What's Next podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, leave uh, some feedback, and I'll look forward to hearing and seeing you next time. Have a great day. Bye-bye.